All right, so, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, my name is Aaron, one of our pastors and preachers here at the Trails, uh, and if this is one of your first times with us, uh, welcome. We are thankful that you are here uh, as we are continuing this study, um, walking through the book of Exodus together, which, if you're newer to the Bible, is the second book of the Bible. Uh, and so today we're actually, we, last week we started uh, Exodus chapter 4 with verses 1 to 17, and today we're picking it right back up. So we're starting with verse 18, uh, and we're going to finish the rest of Exodus chapter 4 together. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles with me, um, we'll be in Exodus, um, big bold number 4, and then smaller numbers or verses uh, 18 to 31. And for those of you who've been gathering with us the last couple of weeks or listening online, uh, hasn't one of the coolest things been as we've been walking through Exodus so far is that we've been seeing, uh, we've been seeing uh, his faith, Moses' faith grow sort of little bit by little bit as he like asks God's questions and then God responds and he asks God more questions than he responds. Uh, I, I think that's been one of the coolest things, just seeing his faith Growing just little bit by little bit. I mean, I, I think I, I am. I, I don't know if you are. I wouldn't presume to know uh, how you read the Bible. But, but when I read through, I, I'm tempted to look back at men like Moses and think they just kind of emerged. Like Moses emerged out of the wilderness. Is this like mighty man of God? You know, he's like wielding God's staff and like Charlton Heston. Right, like, like, let my people go. Right, like, like this forceful dude. Uh, but, but as we've seen as we've been walking through Exodus, that is not the case with our boy Moses. Right, like, not at all. He, he wasn't, as one preacher explained, immediately this courageous prophet wielding the staff of God, leading the children of Israel down the Red Sea Road. Right, that, that's not the picture that we get when we when we read through Exodus. No, instead, last week as we saw in Exodus chapter three and chapter four, Moses is this reluctant shepherd. Right? And, and he argues barefoot in front of a burning bush that's on fire but not consumed. This is his relationship with, with God. And then he even, as we talked about last week, claimed to not have the gifts or abilities to be able to speak well. Remember? And then he asked God at the end there. He said, please send someone else. And God said, no, uh, I'm, I'm sending you. But, but through it all, is it, has it been really cool, too, to watch and see that God has just been so patient with Moses? Like God reveals his name to Moses, gives him the promise of his presence and comforts him with signs, all for the task that God has called him into. So what we've seen throughout the last couple of chapters is Moses' faith grow just kind of little bit by little bit. And this is what we will continue to see happen. And this is what we will see happen in Israel. And this is what we see happen in our lives. And in a way, I think that's encouraging. Right, because Moses isn't some powerhouse of a man, constantly trusting God beyond a shadow of a doubt. No, he, he's a man who, just like all of us, grows little bit by little bit in his knowledge of God, in his hope of God, in the promises of God. And, and as we've been walking through Exodus so far, one of my constant prayers for myself, but also for us as a local church, is that, is that we would, uh, our faith would grow as we see his faith growing, as we walk through hard things. And, and we need to know that God is with us, right? And so that's my, that's my prayer for us, that, that, that as we get into God's word and it gets into us, that, that there is this amazing thing that happens. God's infallible, inerrant, trustworthy, and sufficient word, the Bible, supplies us with everything that we need for life and for godliness so that we may grow into maturity as his people. 
And, and, and this is a, a beautiful text. Moses' story has been a great one to walk through because it reminds us that none of us starts off as spiritual giants. Not a single one of us, right? Whose knee-jerk reaction is just to trust God come what may. Now, our, our growth in godliness takes a lifetime, doesn't it? Some of you older saints, it takes a lifetime and you still walk through stuff that you've been walking through for a long time. See, our, our growth in godliness takes a lifetime. But, but little bit by little bit, aren't there things that looking back a year, two, five, 10, 20 years ago that you see now when things happen, how trustworthy God is and how sovereign he is and how that comforts you in ways that years ago you, you wouldn't have? And so, so Moses is finally now in today's text, the place where he's gonna pack up all of his things and start this journey back to Egypt for this crazy job of leading God's people out of slavery and into the promised land uh, that, that God promised to give Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And so in our study today, in verses 18 to 31, we're going to see five scenes. And we're going to spend the majority of our time in numbers two and three. So, so you're going to be looking at your watch at point three, and you're like, homeboy's going forever. But I swear to you, four and five are going to go fast. Uh, they're they're going to they're blow like a tumbleweed in the middle of Texas. That's what they're going to do. Uh, but, but those two right there, they're going to, they're going to, that's a good, that was a good phrase, wasn't it? Uh, but, but uh, you, none of you have seen a tumbleweed in the middle of Texas. That's okay. Um, scene one, what we're going to see is, uh, is Moses is going to say some goodbyes and then he's going to start the journey all the way back to Egypt. Scene two, verse 21 to 23, uh, God is going to show up and give Moses some last minute reminders and instructions. And and it'll be here, it'll be here where God will sort of pull the curtain back a little bit and show Moses how he's going to do certain things. And then scene three, verse 24 to 26 is a grouping of extremely strange verses. They're the kind of verses that if tomorrow morning you woke up and that was your Bible reading plan and you read this, you would look at that over your morning coffee and say, what in the world do I do with that? Uh, And so prepare yourself. Um, And then scene four, we will see how Moses is reunited with his brother Aaron. And scene five will show us how they go together before the elders of Israel. So that's where we're headed, those five scenes. But before we do, uh, we're going to ask for God's great help as we do so, uh, being reminded again that if we are, as God's people, if we are to grow in godliness from our study of God's word, we are in desperate need of God to work a miracle in our hearts so that we can. And so uh, let's pray and ask God to help us come into his word today and walk away with it profiting us. So let's pray together. So Father, as we come, uh, as, as you've commanded us to do so, God, we come asking for help. Father, we we pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would open our eyes so that we may behold wondrous things from your law. God, we pray that you would give us soft hearts today and not hard ones. God, we know, God, we know every time that we open your word that we never walk away the same, that we are either hardened more so in our sin or we are softened by your spirit. And so I I pray that you would work miracles in our hearts today. Thank you as well for your word and for revealing yourself to us through it. We pray, God, that you would bless the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's go back to our first scene, the one where Moses says his goodbyes and starts his journey back to Egypt. So look at me at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. 
And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So let's stop right there. And in this verse, it, it, I think it's a really fun verse. Moses comes to Jethro, his father-in-law, and asks for his blessing to go. But, but he's not, as we know, just going himself, right? He's taking Jethro's daughter, Moses' wife, Jethro's daughter. He's taking Jethro's daughter into Egypt to liberate Israel and bring them into the promised land. That, dads, that's a big ask, right? Like, like if this, I have a daughter, she's almost one. So I'm far away from any kind of conversations uh, about some dude wanting to marry her and take her away to some foreign nation. But if, but, but this is a big conversation, right? And he comes to Jethro, his father-in-law. He's like, hey, uh, think about going, thoughts, uh, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want to just steal them away in the middle of the night because that would make Christmas dinner real awkward, uh, right? We have to see them again. Uh, but instead, he comes and asks his father-in-law, seeking a blessing from his father-in-law before he takes off. And so Moses explains here that he wants to go back to his brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, why is that ringing bizarrely in your eardrums right now? Because he knows Aaron is alive. Right? God told him, Aaron is alive. Aaron will be your spokesman. You speak to Aaron. Aaron will speak to them. So that's strange until we start realizing this is actually a Hebrew idiom. So in the way that this is translated, it makes it seem as if Moses is like, I'm going to see if they're alive. I don't even know. Um, instead, more so how this would be translated in our culture is, I want to see how they are getting on. I want to see how things are going with them. Is, is what Moses says to his, his father-in-law. And all this is, is really interesting because we aren't sure if Moses tells Jethro everything that is about to happen, right? I'm gonna go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh isn't gonna listen. God's gonna work miracles. Finally, we're gonna get out of there. But we don't know if he does everything or if he keeps some of those things, as some of us do with our father-in-laws, <clears throat> a little bit closer to the chest. You know what I mean? We're not sure, we're not sure which one. Uh, in talking about that, Kevin DeYoung, who's a, who's a pastor in the States, he said, he said, we don't know. He said, but, but we all do know that talking to Pharaoh is one thing, but talking to your father-in-law is another. And that's true. Jeff is like, yes, this is true. It is. That is that's a true thing. Either way, though, he gets the blessing from Jethro, and then he prepares to leave. And so into this very first scene that we have, God shows up, and then he brings some last-minute comfort to Moses. So let's see what the Lord says to him. Verse 19. It says, And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And friends, this would have been extremely comforting to Moses. The men seeking his life have died, and now it's safe to return. So if there was this lingering thought maybe in the back of Moses' mind as he prepares to go back to Egypt, if he's wondering, he's like, okay, I know I killed that Egyptian 40 years ago, and I'm going back. Is that guy's kids or his uncles and aunts? Is somebody going to be hunting for me as I go back into, uh, into Egypt? And God shows up and assures him, no, there's none of this here. Which, by the way, as we get ready for Christmas time, it's that same, that same thing that we have in Matthew chapter 2, right? Where God sends the angel to Joseph and says, hey, you can go back to Israel. The men seeking his life have, like, are dead. They're not looking for him anymore. So in the exact same way here, God shows up to Moses and has great kindness and mercy for him as he's going back. Now, the interesting thing here, too, is Moses has asked God a lot of questions so far in Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4. He doesn't ask God this question. And yet God, who knows all of our inmost thoughts and all of the things that might plague us as his people, comes even before Moses even utters a word as to the thoughts and meditations of his heart. And God assures him in that moment, hey, 
I'm with you. Those guys are dead. Don't even worry about them. Now go. In, in boldness, go, you can go back. Don't be afraid that they are going to take your life. So with the blessing of Jethro and the encouragement from God, Moses begins the journey back. So Moses, verse 20, took his wife and his sons. It's plural now. The last time we saw this, it was singular. Now it's plural. They have been fruitful and multiplied. There we go. And, and, and he had them ride on the donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And notice that. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The staff of God. This is that same staff that Moses would have whittled by himself, probably, to work the shepherding of the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. It is the one that had miraculously turned into a snake, and then he grabbed it, and then it back into a staff. And remember last week, it's the same one that God said, don't forget the staff, right? Like in, in that in exchange with God. And, and now, notice it's called the staff of God. So that no longer is it simply Moses' tool, but rather, as one pastor mentioned, he said, now it is the sign of God's presence and power with his people as Moses goes back into the land. And so that's kind of scene one, which then brings us to our second scene, where God shows up and gives Moses some reminders and instructions, verses 21 to 23. And, and this is what we see. Uh, God's going to continue to let him know what will happen as he goes forth into Egypt and sort of begin to pull back that curtain a little bit more. Bless you. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. So in this second scene, the very first thing that we see is that Moses is reminded by God to do the miracles that God gave him to perform for Pharaoh. As we mentioned last week, there's three of those. Do you remember that God gave? The first one was the snake. His staff would turn into a snake. He would touch it by the tail and it would turn back into a staff. And as we talked about, that showed God's power over the false gods of Egypt. Remember, Pharaoh used to walk around with a huge serpent on his head. Uh, and what we're about to see happen is God is going to crush Egypt and liberate his people are the little beginnings, these little foretastes of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the snake has bitten the son of God. And yet that son who will come through the line of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. So it's this foretaste of what we will see happen later in the coming kingdom of Christ, Jesus. So this is the first sign. The second sign was Moses. Remember, he would put his hand in his, in his jacket, pull it out. It's bright white. Like the, we don't know exactly what the sickness is, but, but we know it's something incredibly deadly. He puts it back in, brings it back out, and it's perfectly back normal all over again, which demonstrates that God is the one who is sovereign over every deadly, deadly sickness and disease which is something that will also happen in the next 11, 11 chapters as God will systematically bring death and disease to the Egyptians and that he will miraculously save his people. And then thirdly, the water into blood so that as Egyptians worshiped the Nile River as a God, so God will turn this river of life into a river of death, showing that all of their worship of these pagan gods will lead to nothing but death and judgment. So do those three things. He implored him. And then secondly, God also lets Moses know what will happen as he goes forth and obeys God's word. God pulls back that curtain. And what will that be? Well, Pharaoh will not listen to Moses. Pharaoh will not listen. God says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And friends, 
this right here is one of the most heartbreaking verses in the entire Bible. It's one of the most heartbreaking ones in the, in the Bible. There's no other way to translate this. The, the context and the structuring of these words themselves, they demand exactly what we see here in our, Engli- in our English translations. That God himself will harden Pharaoh's heart so that to the end that Pharaoh will not let the people go. Pharaoh will hear God's commands out of the mouths of Aaron and Moses and he will see the signs and his heart will not be made to respond well, but instead he will be resolutely opposed to. His heart will be like a heart of stone towards God's words and towards God's people. God's commands will fall, therefore, on a hard heart that cannot feel. And, and imagine, if you will, that you are Moses. That you're Moses, you hear these words, and this is now your task. You get to go and preach, and Pharaoh will not listen to you. He'll see all the works that you do that authenticate the fact that you are coming and you have this message from God and he won't listen. God will not set the people free because God has not allowed him to do so. Rather, God has hardened Pharaoh's heart and with each miracle that is performed, his heart will only get harder to the things of God, not softer. This is why this is one of the most heartbreaking sentences that we have read up to this point. Now, if you remember, we're told in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that the king of Egypt wouldn't let God's people go unless, and that's a big word, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So God will stretch out his hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that he will do in it. And after that, he will let God's people go. So we knew that this was God's plan all along, but here we tell us how God will do that. We knew the what. We didn't know the how. And so this is brand new information that we have. All of this will come about as God will harden Pharaoh's heart until every last miracle is performed. And God has clearly shown that he alone is the only true and living God. And that the worthless idols of Egypt cannot save because they are impotent demons. They are trying to steal the worship of the only true and living God. And when God, God's wonders and his miracles have ceased, then... When he's done all of the miracles that he has ordained, only then will he allow Pharaoh's heart to change so that Pharaoh will let them go. But only then. And through all this again, what we're going to see is clearly that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the only true and living God. That is going to be the bell that just constantly is, is rung over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And specifically in these these next 11 chapters, but really all the way throughout the, the book of Exodus. That he is the one who rescues and redeems his people by his mighty hand. And as he does so, he brings judgment on the nations whom he is hardening, but, and he is bringing grace to those whom he will soften. So he brings judgment on the nations by hardening whom he will and by softening whom he will to accomplish all of his purposes and plans that he foreordained from before the foundations of the earth. So he'll harden Pharaoh, but who will he soften? The elders of Israel. Do you remember Moses' big fear? Is I will go and they won't listen to me. God says, no, 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 they will. So in this, God both softens some and hardens others. And we are going to zoom in a bit more on this discussion in the weeks and months ahead. Because what we will see actually is in this book, we're going to see 22 That's right, 2-2, references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 11 of them will be, interestingly enough, Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And 11 of them are God hardening Pharaoh's heart. 
So, so we will see both of these things. And so as Christians who submit ourselves to this book and to the authority of God, we want to, as Christians, affirm everything that God affirms, even when our culture and even when our Christian culture and even when sometimes our thoughts don't like it. So we must be people, if we're going to truly submit to God's word, we're going to see what does God say, and then we're going to affirm that as true. We are not sovereign over this book. This book is sovereign over us. And so, so you might be wondering, well, was it Pharaoh who hardened his own heart? Yes. Was it God who also hardened Pharaoh's heart? Yes. In the theological term for this, if you want to do some more research and study in the weeks ahead, uh, the, the theological term for this is called compatibilism, which is the root word compatible. You think about like your iPhone and your computer. Are they compatible? Well, no, because everything else is on Bluetooth. But that used to be the question, right? Uh, but, but are they compatible? And so the thing that we're walking through in this is both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So, so though these things might not clearly go together in our minds, they're both clearly taught within God's word as true, side by side. And so as people who come under the authority of the Bible, we submit ourselves to this doctrine and to the Bible, even when it's difficult for us to understand, and even when there might be a million questions that come buzzing into our minds. Like, what about this? What about, what about that? What about this? Those questions are fine. As long as we mutually come and say, but what does the book say? So we're going to let the book say what the book says, and we're going to submit ourselves to it, and then we're going to wrestle through it for forever. Can we just set that as a, as a base for, for the next couple of months together? And we're going to set that as a, this is God's word, and, and we're, going to, we're going to wrestle through it together. Because we must. We don't get a choice if we're going to follow Jesus, Right? And so again and again, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are compatible. They are both taught in the Bible. And so here in this exact text, we see God will, in this moment, he will harden Pharaoh's hearts. But in other texts, we'll see Pharaoh will harden his own heart. And in all of this, really, we will see Romans 1 fleshed out as God himself will give Pharaoh over to do the evil of his heart. Thus, Pharaoh will be guilty and condemnable before God for hardening his own heart against God. And yet God, at the exact same time, is sovereign over every jot and tittle of this hardening. And everything that we see in the book of Exodus and everything that we see in the Bible and everything that we see in human history unfolds exactly as God has ordained it from before the foundations of the world. And there is great comfort here for us as God's people. For example, have you ever wondered the question, has my sin somehow thwarted the plans and purposes of God? The Bible would say, no, it is impossible to do so. Therefore, this life that we sometimes have of like, I did this, I had this sin, I went through this thing, I did this thing. Did that somehow, like, am I now living in God's like plan Z for my life, right? Like I, I'm way past A, right? Like am I, am I somewhere near the end of God's plan for my life? God says, no, you don't have the ability to thwart the plans and purposes of God. And so there's, there is a wealth of great comfort here for us because we struggle with thoughts like that, don't we? So anyway, we'll get back to that later. But, but, but this is so good. And no doubt, these are also very weighty things to think about, right? But 
They are important things, and they are biblical things. And we are a people of the book, believing that the creator of the universe has chosen to reveal himself through this book. And we are called to believe God's words. And this is one of those times where we might, even at the end of the day, just be able to look at God's word and our logic. We can't comprehend it. We say, I don't understand it, but if God says it, it must be true, but I'm not smart enough to get it. And if you're there, welcome to the club. Uh, You're in a a safe space because God is nothing like us. He he is radically different than us. He is God. We're like little ants. He's the ruler and reigner of the universe. Like, Like the difference between us and the Lord is drastic. And in everything that we'll see unfold in Exodus, we also need to remember Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, right? Which is a verse that we have come back to often over the last... 20 months or so, uh, and it's one that has brought us great comfort, and it still does, especially in tumultuous times. And this is what it says. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And so, so as we've said, this is a foundational truth for us, but also a comfort for us. And here's where it's really important. For example, is Justin Trudeau sovereign over Canada? No, God is. Is Joe Biden sovereign of the states? Praise God, no. But are the Taliban sovereign over Afghanistan? No. See, this is, this is the beauty of always seeing God's word. That God is sovereign over every electorate, every king, every dictator, every tribe, every nation, and every heart. This is a bedrock of hope and truth for the Christian. That we know that our God is sovereign over everything. So we can be assured that all of his promises will stand. Not one of them will drop. Because no one has the authority to thwart his plans and purposes. And as I said, that is a well of comfort and hope for the Christian. Especially in tumultuous times. Especially when some of you are thinking through various things regarding your job or where you're living or Exit strategies, various things going on in your life to know that there is a God who loves you and has made his love known to you perfectly through Christ, who is your father, who is sovereign over everything. Friends, that will take a lot of sleepless nights and the anxiety churning in your soul, not completely away, but drastically away. As we remember in those moments, I'm not sovereign and the Lord is, so I'm going to trust you, Father. Right, and that, that changes everything. And we could and we will, as I said, talk through this more in the future. But if these are brand new conversations for you, if you've never heard about compatibilism, you've never studied any of these doctrines, just know you're in good company. I understand completely. The church I grew up in, we never talked about things like this. I had no idea this was in the Bible until I was in university. I'm reading through, I'm reading through Exodus. I'm like, wait, what is this? What is this? And I'm like freaking, I'm like, no one at church ever talked about this. This is in the book. What is this? It made me freak out at this genuine concern and uncertainty of how things like God's sovereignty and man's responsibility can simultaneously be true. And I love to have conversations like that. So if you want to continue to have conversations like that, I have great books that you can read. I'd love to have you over. We have lots of coffee. We can walk through God's word together. His word is a great hope in the midst of this. But remember, remember in all this, growth in godliness and growth in God's word don't happen overnight. And God, just because he is God, will always be higher than us. His will, his mind, intellect, everything is greater than us. We'll never fully comprehend who he is because we are not God. Which means even in the renewed earth, even in the renewed earth, when our resurrected bodies, and we've been there for billions and billions and billions of years, God is still much greater than us. His wisdom and his knowledge, it would be like the deepest of seas and our toes would be barely in the water after billions and billions of years. That's how much greater his ways are than ours. He is God and we are not. But I also want then to give you a word of caution. 
Don't let that be an excuse to not strive to know God better here on the earth. It's common, isn't it, to hear Christians say things like, oh, I don't like studying theology because it just brings division between people. You ever heard that? I don't like to study. I don't know anything. That just makes people angry at one another. This is a common thing. People say, brother, let me assure you, these doctrines are not simply aimed at our heads that we may like argue with one another. No, instead, what they are is they are directly aimed at our hearts, directly at our hearts so that we may grow in our knowledge and wisdom of who God is, that we may know him better, that we may grow in godliness, that we may get into his word so that his word can get into us and then we worship him for who he truly is. Can you imagine worshiping God for someone that he's not? And he's like, just read my book and I'll tell you who I am. You're like, I don't want to read the books. So I don't really want to know you. I'd rather just worship you how I think you are. You're kind of like a bigger, nicer, kinder version of me sort of in the sky. Because like, no, no, no. See who I am and worship me for who I am. And friends, as you do so, your love and your delight in God will just grow immensely. We as Christians don't want to be immature in our faith. No, we want to know him for who he is so that we can give our lives to studying this book and striving to know him more and more. Because in doing so, it causes our worship of him, our praise of him, our love of God to grow deeper and deeper as his people. It's not a vain attempt, but it's a glorious one, one that makes our hearts glad. So, brother and sister, don't say immature in your love of God. Instead, let it flourish and grow its roots deep. So study doctrines like this, because they should, and they ought, and they will, I promise, lead you to have awe of God, a greater awe of who he is. So, that is what we see happen in Moses' life. And reflecting on that in Moses' life and thinking through God's designs of our own growth and godliness and progress in the gospels as people and how we grow year by year. So we were talking about earlier. All of that reminds me of this beautiful scene from the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically in the book of uh, Prince Caspian, where Lucy, the youngest of these four children, she sees Aslan, who if you are newer to the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the lion character who's supposed to symbolize Jesus. And she sees him after a long time. And she sees him and she says, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. And it says the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. And his warm breath came all around her and she gazed up into the large, wise face. Aslan, Lucy said, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. She says, not because you are? He says, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that our goal as Christians? This is God's great goal for us, that every year as Christians, as we grow in our knowledge of God's word and study of his word and grow in maturity, that we find him bigger and bigger. Not that he is, he's God, but that we find him to be so. And this is the aim about studying God's word, coming daily into this book, gathering with God's people and sharpening one another, reading through good books, praying for one another. And this is our goal, that every year we would grow in the knowledge of God, that we might find him bigger and bigger. And I pray this would happen for us as we continue to walk through his word as his people. So that's the close of scene two. Moses goes back to Egypt with the charge of God to do the signs that God has given him. And Pharaoh will not listen because God has hardened his heart. So Moses, prepare yourself. That's to be expected. And then we get to verse 22. 
And verse 22 says, then you shall say to Pharaoh. So here's what you should say to him. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, if you're a writer in your Bibles, let's pause here. This is the, this is the first time in the entire Bible where God calls Israel his son. His firstborn son, meaning that that they are the sons and daughters of Israel. They are the sons and daughters of God. This is the kind of relationship that God has with his people. This is this familial family kind of relationship. And this is the very first time that it's brought to light. In the book of Genesis, God is their shepherd over them. But here he is their father. They are his son which will be from this moment on a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament as Israel will be the faithless son and then into the New Testament where Jesus is the true and better son who is faithful where Israel has failed. And so God reveals himself as their father. They are his firstborn son. And God has very specific plans for his people. Look at me at verse 23. It says, and I say to you, to Pharaoh, let my people go that he may serve me. So so Moses' call for God's people, God's call for his people, is that they ought to serve him. Now, not that God needs us to serve him, right? I mean, if God was hungry, would he tell you? No, he's God, right? He's not a man that can be served by human hands, but in a strange and beautiful way, God has given us our lives and our lives are meant to be lives of worship and service to God. Not that he needs us, but he calls us as Christians into works that he has prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, and he gives us his spirit to empower us in those works. And our lives are all to be spiritual worship to him for his glory alone and not for the glory of someone like Pharaoh. And God wants his son to be liberated from slavery. The, The time is up, God is saying, we're now done. He gets his dad voice on, we're done. And he's here to ransom and rescue Israel. But he doesn't stop there. So he sends this warning and he gives an ultimatum to Pharaoh. Listen to this, verse 23. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I mean, that is an ultimatum, isn't it? (laughs) If God's like, do this or I'm going to kill your firstborn. Like, that's like Liam Neeson. You know what I mean? Like, I have a very set of, like, awesome skills and, uh, and abilities, and I'm going to kill you. I just messed that up. I'm not very good at Liam Neeson's voice, nor do I remember what he said in this exact moment. But it's just like that, right? Like, I have a very set of very particular skills. But this also doesn't come out of left field either. It, this is this ultimatum of God. Because remember, what have we been seeing ever since the beginning of Exodus chapter 1? If we remember, God uh, has had his people in, Israel, in Egypt, and Pharaoh has enslaved them. Not only has he enslaved them, but he has gotten the entire nation to participate with him in the killing of their sons. Remember, they had to throw their sons into the Nile River and then they would be eaten by alligators. So the river turned into a river of blood as a result of these alligators eating them. And God doesn't miss a thing and he wants them to know it. He sees their suffering. He knows their suffering and he's here to vindicate them. He is here to bring justice And the anger of the Lord is just like the anger of a good father being kindled against the mistreatment of his kids. And so God is about to be glorified through saving his people and judging his enemies. Thus, in these words that will be spoken to Pharaoh's ears, God tells Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son, meaning that Pharaoh has enslaved and murdered God's kids. Which, like, that would be a crazy thing to hear. Not only that, but if Pharaoh refuses to let them go, the trade will be... A son for a son. 
And interestingly enough, isn't that exactly what happens? In that very last plague, as Pharaoh's son, who Pharaoh, they believed, was a god, so his son was one of the sons of the gods, would be murdered by the angel of death. That'll be a heartbreaking moment, but it will lead to Pharaoh sending Israel away. God's firstborn son will be sent away so that the nations may know that there is a God in Israel and that God fights for his people and he is not to be trifled with. And won't that ring through the ears of all of those in the promised land who shake and quiver with fear knowing that Israel is coming into the promised land and their God fights for them? And that brings us to our next scene, which, if we're honest, is really challenging to understand. It's that verse I, I mentioned a minute ago that's hard, uh, that you might struggle to understand it. And what's it difficult to explain, especially if you're newer to Christianity or newer to the Bible, or, or if you read through the Bible with your kids and you get to Exodus 4, you might be tempted to, like, skip these next three verses. Like, we'll come back to that when you're older, buddy. Um, but, but it's important to talk about. So look at scene three. It's verses 24 to 26. We're going to see how Moses himself has God draw near to him in judgment. So let's look at verse 24. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And let's, let's pause here for a second. The emphasis here and the intention of it is not that God has resolved to kill Moses, but rather that he's coming really close really close. He's letting Moses know, you better correct what you're doing, walking in disobedience, or if you don't correct that, there's going to be worse things that are going to happen to you. So what this, the intention of this, not that God's going to come and going to kill him and then God changes his mind. Rather in the Hebrew, the intention is God just comes real close. And that real close moment of God's judgment breathing down upon Moses will make Moses, who's walking in disobedience to God's clear commands, go, whoop, Never mind, but he will be saved by his wife. We'll see that in a second. Here we go. Verse 25. Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. This is why I told you you probably would skip over this with your children. Uh, and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, that's what I meant by this is a strange text, right? Super strange. This is strange text. Like, where do you go in explaining this? Right? If you're brand new to Christianity, or maybe you're a bit fuzzy on the Old Testament, let me remind you of a few things that we have happened so far in the book of Genesis, the book that came right before this. So the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, if you remember, God has called Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, to leave everything that Abraham knew and to follow God. And as Abraham's story unfolds, he also grows in faith and in trust of God. So much so that by Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, he, by faith, becomes a child of God. He believes in the promise of God from Genesis 3.15 that there will come a son who will crush the head of the serpent and that son will be the promised one who will rescue and redeem them and the entire earth. He believes upon that promise and because of his faith in the coming son, he is justified. He is declared righteous before God, not by works, but rather by faith in the promise of God. And so people always ask, well, will people in the Old Testament, were they saved the same way that we are? Because we have faith in Jesus were they saved by works? Abraham is a big resounding no. Abraham was saved the same way that we are. He was saved looking forward to the day of Christ. We are saved looking back on the day of Christ. Both of us are saved by the person and work 
of Jesus. Now, did Abraham know his name will be called Jesus? He will be, I don't know, however tall he was and however weight he was and bald or not bald. Or, no, no. Didn't know any of those things, but he did know the promise of God trusted in the promise of God. In the same way that we don't know those things about Jesus either. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, and we look back like in faith. In the same way. So Genesis 15.6 is, if you're also newer, Genesis 15.6 is like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It is, it is the thing that everything looks back to. So if someone says they have the faith of Abraham, it means they have the faith in the coming son, and they have faith in that son so that they are now declared righteous as well. Not by works but by faith in the coming son. In fact, in the New Testament, it talks about that a lot, doesn't it? The New Testament hits this over and over and over again. Was Abraham saved by faith or by works? Well, he was saved by faith alone, but was it a faith that remained alone? No, it wasn't. In fact, our kids are learning about that today in Trails Kids, so you can ask them about that afterwards. Um, no, they don't. Our works don't justify us. No, we're justified before God by faith alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. So Abraham was spared from God's wrath by faith alone, but God gave Abraham circumcision, a work, as the sign of this covenant relationship. So in the same way that some of you are married, you wear wedding rings. Mine's in my pocket, because if not, I play with it when I preach. Uh, but, but you wear a wedding ring. That ring doesn't make you married, right? But it's a symbol of your marriage. In the same way, that circumcision is a sign of the covenant, but it's much more than that. Look at me at Genesis chapter 17, verse 7 to 14. This is where God first gives circumcision to Abraham. He says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you, you shall circumcise. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is, oh, I already did that. Oh, no, both of he who is born in your house and who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Now, parents, if your kids are in here, later you can explain all of that to them, but I won't. Um, but, but, but if we remember, if we remember from last week, if we remember last week, why was God's anger kindled toward Moses? Do you remember? It's because he had this obstinate refusal to obey God's commands, Right? Remember, we, we walked through all the various ways that Scripture uses that Hebrew phrase, af, and how in it's used in relation to God talking to his people, his kids, that there's discipline for them disobeying God, and there's blessings for them obeying God. Um, so God's anger, then, is kindled against Moses because, why? Well, it's because he is knowingly disobeying God's clear commands and refusing to obey and go to Egypt. And here he is now going to Egypt, but there's a problem. He is about to lead God's people, God's firstborn son, out of Egypt. But Moses has not kept the sign of the covenant. So what does he deserve and what does his kid deserve? 
to be cut off from God's people. And now it begins to make a whole lot more sense why God draws real close to him of like, Moses, last week I got angry at you because you were obstinately disobeying my commands. Now you are about to go lead my people out of slavery into the promised land and you have been faithless to keep the commands that I've given you. The the very sign that demonstrates your faith you have not done. So God draws real close to him. Not only that, but this refusal to circumcise his son was tantamount to breaking covenant with God. So all he deserves from God is wrath and judgment because of this. As T.D. Alexander explains, Moses' failure to circumcise his son excludes Gershom, his son, from the covenant that God initiated with Abraham. And this covenant underpins all of the divine deliverance from slavery. So Moses deserves both the curse of God upon himself and against his son. So God draws near in judgment. And yet, Zipporah comes to the rescue. Praise God for faithful wives. Amen, brothers. Praise God for faithful wives. Zipporah comes to the rescue. Now, we don't know why Moses didn't do this. We aren't told why. Maybe Zipporah is just closer to a knife. I don't know. Uh, But whatever the case, she takes a flint and she circumcises her son. And taking the foreskin, she touches Moses' feet with it. Now, no doubt, this is a strange scene, right? Strange. It's one of the strangest in the entire Bible. But don't miss the forest for the trees. As one pastor noted, God has not given us his word to confuse us, but to communicate with us and to commune with us in his word. And so the second thing, the point is that God is getting Moses' attention here, calling him to obedience to the covenant and to integrity as the one who would soon deliver the people of God. God wants integrity in private and integrity in public. He will not allow Moses to to go and approach and have integrity publicly unless he's also doing it privately. And I want to notice this phrase as well, bridegroom of blood. It means a person that I am now related to by blood. So this act of bloodshed covers Gershom and Moses' life. Right? Isn't that beautiful? Moses gets spared, but Gershom also now is initiated into the people of God. And so before Moses leads God's people, he must become one of them. And that's what this whole thing is saying. Before he leads them, he must become one of them. This is incredibly important. Remember last week we talked about Moses, bougie Moses growing up in the palace, and then he disappears for 40 years, showing back up, hey, everybody, I'm here to lead you. If he had done that without his son circumcised, do you think they would have listened to Moses? Heck No. They would have looked at him. I don't know how they check this, by the way. Um, they, they would have looked at his son and been like, no, you're not one of us. How, you're not from God. You're not even being faithful to the commands of God. We're not following you, nor should they have. See, because half-hearted obedience to God would not be enough for Moses. God commands full obedience. And Zipporah's faithfulness here helps save Moses from God's judgment and Moses' disobedience. Not only that, but the interesting thing here too is the word that is used for how Zipporah smears the blood on Moses. It's the exact same word to describe how God's people before that Passover meal would smear the blood on their doorposts. And in so doing, as they smear that blood of the spotless lamb across their doorposts, What is being saved in that moment? Their firstborn sons from the wrath of God. See, God's angel would pass over them because of the smeared blood. Here as well, God passes over judgment on Moses because of this smeared blood, of this faithfulness to the covenant of God. 
Not only that, but many of us are probably already thinking it and applying it. We also know that the smearing of the blood onto Moses and onto those doors of Passover also points forward to that coming day when Jesus, the true and better Lamb of God, the true and better Son, would come to take away the sins of the world with his blood poured out. And, and the only way, the only way that we who deserve to only have God draw near in judgment to us, the only way that we as a rebellious people can be saved from facing that judgment, that righteous wrath of God for our hard-heartedness and our many sins is also to be covered by the blood of Jesus by faith. So, so this event that, that is very strange, looks back to Genesis 17, looks forward to uh, the coming Passover, and then this future reality where the blood of Jesus is poured out that we might be forgiven and welcomed in as God's sons and daughters by faith. Dear Christian, that is your only hope in life and in death, is the blood of Jesus in your place. And if you are here exploring Jesus, that is also what's available for you today. Like Moses, all of us, you included, we all deserve for God to draw near to us in judgment. And yet, dear friend, God has drawn near to you to offer you forgiveness and pardon for your many sins. If you will simply come believe upon Jesus, there is salvation to be had. And it comes as Jesus, God the Son, he is judged in your place. He suffers the weight and the consequences of your many sins so that you can be declared righteous and innocent before God by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And here's the beauty of that, is that God is not telling you to become better. God's not looking at you and saying, hey, measure up, be more religious, Uh, have more great actions that you do, recycle more. God isn't looking at us giving a laundry list of things that we must do. No, no. He is the judge overall is calling you to come to Jesus by faith and he will forgive you. So today, friend, don't harden your heart against God. He's made a way for you to be saved and he's beckoning you to come and have forgiveness of sins and have peace and comfort with God. So will you come? His promise is faithful and he will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you will come and believe. So would you? It's a strange text, but it's a beautiful one, isn't it? And then those final two scenes go really quickly. So we see the reunited brothers, verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then they go before the elders. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And then we see the response of the elders. Those first four words, and the people believed. Do you remember all the time that Moses had arguing with God that they weren't going to believe? Those four little words, and they believed. Isn't that a great comfort to Moses? But, but also, isn't it a great comfort for us knowing that, that the Lord really does have power and authority and sovereignty to do what he's promised to do? And then we see, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction... They bowed their heads and worshiped. And these three verbs in verse 31 are a great call for us just in wrapping up today. 
One of my best friends, he preached a sermon not too long ago, and he made these three points, and I think they're beautiful, so I'm going to steal them. So he gets all the credit, and God gets the glory. But, but I felt like I was doing a base camp podcast for a moment. Uh, firstly, uh, firstly, they believed. They believed. They believed the good news that Moses proclaimed. They believed it. First part of verse 31. <clears throat> and friends, we have that same need in our lives, don't we? There is a strong likelihood in a room like this that there is someone who has heard the good news of Jesus, either in our sermon today or throughout your life, but you have not believed upon Jesus. You might have this head knowledge of him. You might have heard of him with the hearing of the ears, but you might not have believed upon Jesus as your God, King, and Savior. And so I want to invite you right now to come to Jesus and believe this good news. Friends, hear, hear of the judgment of God that you deserve, not only because of your many sins, but like, like, I mean, like Moses, we have each broken his commandment by not keeping his laws and commands. But the good news is that Jesus has come, that the true and better son has come. And, and he who knew no sin took upon himself the judgment that we deserved to pay. And he died in our place and rose from the dead that we might be forgiven. So come to him today, as long as it is called today. And then for each of us that, that have believed, may we continue to believe by grace. Hear his words and store them in your hearts. Let us pursue God and the knowledge of God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, so that, just like little Lucy, that God may grow bigger and bigger in our sight with each passing year. Let us be a people who hear God's word and believe it. Secondly, they bowed down. And this is an act of worship, but uniquely it's an act of submission to the holiness of God. So by, by way of application, can I ask, in, in what ways do we have a hard time bowing before God in obedience? Also, in, in looking at Moses' life, don't, don't, we also, don't we also want to be people of integrity? People who take care of the spiritual conditions of our own hearts and the hearts that are in our little homes as of primary importance. And think about that for, for those of you like me who are husbands and fathers, there's a very unique application here for us. Will we lead our families in the worship of God? Will we as men, will we set this this culture in our home where the little people and the spouses that are in our little home, where they can flourish to be all that God has made them to be. Will we as men walk in the ways and commands of God, not to earn his approval, but because we've already been given it in Christ? See, we men have the role to play in our homes to love and to serve our wives, as Ephesians 5.25 explains and to raise the next generation of little hearts in our homes to love and serve and worship the Lord. And then, dear sisters, you who might be striving to raise your kids as well in the fear and admonition of the Lord, maybe even apart from a godly husband, keep it up. I mean, who knows if God will, by your faithfulness, just like Zipporah, save your kids and your unbelieving husband from the wrath of God. Keep sowing those seeds of the gospel and trusting that he will provide. And then thirdly, we worship. 
Isn't it great that these elders of Israel are worshiping from God? Even before they're delivered out of slavery? Did you notice that? They, they haven't been liberated yet. Like, they don't wait to worship God for when they get out of bondage. They're worshiping him in their slavery. When they hear the good news that God has heard their cry, that God remembers and is acting upon his covenant, that God knows their suffering and has come to save them, they respond in worship of God. They don't wait until the clouds of suffering have passed. They sing in their suffering and they praise through their pain. The worship, they worship exactly where they are. And brother and sister, that is a great reminder for us, isn't it? Isn't that a great reminder of us? We should imitate the faith like that. They worship where they are. Worship the Lord in our waiting, in our confusion, in our anger, in our junk that we have going on, knowing that he is sovereign, that he knows us, that he sees us. And through Jesus, he has delivered us from the bondage of Satan, sin, and death. So there is much to praise him for in light of the gospel. And then as we wrap up our sermon, it's fitting today that today is Communion Sunday where we celebrate that the blood of Jesus has been poured out for our many sins so that we who deserve the wrath of God might be welcomed to the table to have communion with God. And that this only happens because God the Son stood condemned in our place, his body broken and his blood poured out, that we might be reconciled and redeemed. We too are people who have had the wrath of God pass over us because of the blood of another.